everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Dickinson Forever Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Robin Detman. I'm a content creator at LDW Films, and I'm also the resident producer nerd here at the podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Jess. I am a writer, actor, and a resolute dreamer on this podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Red. I am a photographer, a music producer, and the resident fashion nerd of this podcast. And also, I'm a clown part-time, so... So we created this podcast because we literally cannot stop talking about Elena Smith's show on Apple TV Dickinson. So we're not going to. We're just going to keep talking about it. And every week we're going to have a new guest. We are going to explore the many themes and the many layers of the show. We're going to look at the art and the craft, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. We're going to talk about the parallels of history, the revisionist view. Elena has brought to us what it makes us think about, what it makes us feel, and how we think this kind of art impacts the world. This week, we are going to discuss episode 308, and our theme is Emily's Civil Wars. We're going to be touching on Emily's shift from unconventional to conventional, different arcs throughout the series, as well as how that resonates with each of us, as we all have a different take for each scene. We'll be talking along with Brooke and gather her insight as to the story that's unfolding about the Civil War history and Emily's internal battles. All right, let's dig in the theme, Emily's Civil Wars. What do you got, Jess? So I wanted to touch on that shift, that almost traditional shift uh, from going unconventional to conventional uh, which we see Austin call Emily out on almost immediately um, prior to Fraser's funeral. Yeah. And and what that means. He asked her what, what happened to her, that she used to be different and what changed. So is it really her loyalty or is it she's bought into the patriarchy? Ah, it's, it's such a... It's such a tricky thing because I I feel like, yes, she's bought into the patriarchy, but I also feel like like she's so lost in this in this of not knowing who she is. Like she's she's still trying to figure that out. So I feel like she doesn't even fully know where her loyalty lies. You get me like she does know Mm -hmm. that she chose her dad. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't think she knows fully the reasons as to why she's choosing her dad or why her loyalties are there. Yeah, totally. I mean, just remember back to that previous episode where Austin alluded to the fact that everybody in the family knows that her dad abuses her. He physically abuses her. To completely like not acknowledge your own traumas and to not even recognize it as trauma. Like you're so, could it be brainwashed? Could Could I say the words brainwashed? Would that be it? Because like when you're in a traumatic relationship, right? When you're in a toxic relationship where where your abuser is abusing you, you know, it, it's such a tricky situation. Like it's yeah. like they they manipulate you. Well, and in a way we can, we don't, I don't entirely know if, I mean, no, yeah, I can definitely say Emily has been manipulated because I mean, we talked about this. I'm not sure if it was, I think it was episode one where we mm-hmm. talked about how her father 
basically, you know, she was like, I might not be here when you get back, right? When he's leaving. Yes. And she's like, Emily, where would you go? That is a form of manipulation. And then like during Christmas, when he gets her the, the you know, the Christmas present of, of, of plants and, and flowers and stuff, you know, like that's another form of manipulation. You, you're, you're sugarcoating or you're glossing over the fact that you're traumatizing this person. I think if we put it into modern context, it's really an older version of what would be today's Stockholm syndrome. She feels like she can't escape, like she doesn't have a choice, but a part of her feels like she has that freedom and she had to come full circle to realize it. And we haven't yet seen what's going to be made of it after her inferno. I mean, it's completely attached. What if the whole idea of patriarchy, what if that whole thing is the Stockholm syndrome as well? And that's how they trap women in the patriarchy. Can we talk about how like, like eventually, I mean, Emily does come around to that. And like, we see it at, at the end of the scene between her and her father, like she told when she tells him that he has no imagination, right? Oh, that line, you have no power to change anything because you have no imagination. Well, like, so it's historically noted that she actually did say that though. Um, and this comes from Sue's daughter, Martha. Really? Yeah. So apparently she had quoted uh, basically Emily saying that, you know, describing her father, Edward, And then this is the quote, it's, he has the facts, but not the phosphorescence of learning, basically saying he has no imagination. So knowledge without imagination means nothing, basically. Oh, well, then that makes that line even more incredible. Wow. I didn't know that that was a historical fact, though. That is, that is interesting. Uh, Did you know that in one of Elena's tweets, when she said, my fans are my estate, essentially, Mm -hmm. that was a direct quote from Emily, except she didn't say fans. Um, I don't remember the direct line, but I was looking at different lines of her poetry and I ran across it. I was like, I think I know what you're talking about. Clever. Yes. Let's talk about uh, Death's Carriage on the battlefield. What did that mean to you? I think it hit me the same way it hit Emily. When she saw it, she looked distraught. Like, I was, I'm going to tell you the truth. I wasn't expecting that. Like, I wasn't, out of all the madness that was going on, like, that was the last thing that was on my mind. And when it panned to that shot of Carriage's death just completely disheveled and, and destroyed, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like they really did it to him. So I remember seeing a tweet and I don't remember who said it or exactly what it was. That visual was saying how the civil war literally made death lose its meaning. Death had no meaning anymore because there was so much of it all the time. I go, I go back to, I go back to the scene, uh, the first scene that we had with, with Emily and death and, and the season he's like, this is no fun. Well, to, to segue from that scene, that first scene that you're talking about where he says, this is no fun for me anymore. Um, at first glance, when I 
did the first watch of the episode and I saw that moment and then immediately after see Emily's elation to me I correlated that to be her loss of inspiration was simultaneously met with her restoration of hope for humanity death was her inspiration for everything death nature life sue sue that's interesting but seeing his carriage be destroyed to me that that just said she lost her inspiration therefore she needs to find it again and then she did when she saw henry fight her hope was restored at that point i feel because she walked away from it so much clearer minded as to what she's going to do next wow that's a really nice way to look at it and that that is what I love about the show. We can all watch a scene and just be completely impacted in a different way and see something completely different. But all of our points of views make sense. I mean, that's why we'll be talking about it forevermore because there's just so much richness in it and so much to dive into. And every time you rewatch an episode, it just, you find something new. Yeah. To talk about things that we weren't expecting, um, 308 when Betty mm. snaps mm-hmm. at Emily. She is such a happy, positive, you know, calm, nurturing person. And you can see how how in shambles she is with the fact that Henry, she found out Henry is is at war. Mm-hmm. You know, just seeing that scene, that was a scene I wasn't expecting. But I'm so grateful and so happy that it's in there. Yeah, and her comment about hope, I want nothing to do with. All hope ever did was make me cry. There's a lot of power in that statement. Another line that, like, how do you write a line like that? Like, that is, and it means something. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I, when she said that line, I felt it. I felt it because hope is a silly thing. Hope is a... You know, hope is the thing with feathers. It's it's there. It's there, even if you don't want it to be, you know? Yes. I didn't know how much I needed Nurse Vinny in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> I, I didn't know I needed it, but uh, I'm so happy we got it last episode. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Let's talk about the Inferno, people. Yes. Let's go into the Inferno. First thoughts? Well, let's start, you know, Vinny burning Emily's poems. Fear. Those are all, I feel like everything that we saw in the Inferno is her deepest fears going on, especially about herself and how, how she affects the world, which is going against her intention of wanting to put good in the world, wanting to keep the world together when really deep down, she feels like she's tearing the world apart. And also Emily cried through the, throughout the entire episode every scene she cried every single scene she's breaking yeah you can't completely betray yourself your true self like she was doing during the funeral scene and not start to break inside ultimately you can't become the person that you're trying to become without a little bit of breaking get to a comfortable place without being uncomfortable first yeah you have to go through that through that pain through those growing pains through i mean really opening your eyes to the problems you have yep i think the scene that she has at the introduction of austin in the inferno spoke volumes because she i mean her idea 
in this inferno of hers of who he is and wanting to lock her up and put her away and having him be a mirror image of the doctor from the asylum Mm -hmm. but his statement you didn't hurt me emily you destroyed me like wow the crazy part is her saying like you know i love sue and he did know the whole time yeah he did I mean, but the crazy thing is, is, like, we see all season, she's out here openly admitting she loves Sue to everyone else except for Sue. That's because she can't. She couldn't come. She can't come to terms with it yet. She can't come to. Way. Yeah. Fully to be herself, which we'll get to in a second. What about thinking about every single scene in the Inferno in the terms of loss of control? I think the one with her mother is feeling trapped that she has to take care of her mother. And that her mom is like disconnecting entirely because we see in a previous episode that her mother says, I'm going to bed until the war's over. And she's been in like this depressed state yeah. and, and almost in a restless way. But then we see her in this crib saying she lost her mommy, right? And yeah. she needed Emily to take care of her. I think that spoke to more than just Emily's fear, but also that was like a universal theme in a way that it's taking away from her life to provide for somebody else that she feels compelled to deal with, compelled to take care of, even if it's not entirely by her will. Yeah, totally. I was just thinking like with Vinny, it's the loss of control of her poems. It's a loss of control of how life affects people, how maybe something inside of Emily thinks she really can change, you know, the world the events that happen through her through her poetry through her words but you can't change that you can affect people you can lift them up but you can't you can't change what happens all the time and then her dad her dad dies death of patriarchy right great visual there and then the only way she can have sue again is out of her control is if sue becomes a man and can actually be the one to take care of her I don't know. I just thought about the control thing. So I don't know if I'm bought into it, but <laughs> I mean, the crazy thing is, is like, if her dad dies, then I mean, you saw whenever they were writing out his will, he's, he's like, I'm going to leave you to the care of Austin or Austin's son. Oh my God. The man who decides, you know, what happens to you? Like that means she's still, even after he dies, she still has no control of herself for her life. All right, I want to touch on your question for the line in in Emily's poem, um, My Life Stood a Loaded Gun. Uh, At the end, it states, for I have the power to kill without the power to die. You wanting to know what that means. My personal interpretation of it is she knows the power of her words. She knows that she can strike someone dead with them even if not literal, but she doesn't have the power to die behind them because it's her words, her mind, what she sees out of life and death. It it brings her to this full circle moment of, of realizing that she can stand behind her paper and pen, write down what she means to convey, even if not well written or understood, how she articulates what words can do to people in a mass versus you know her ability to hide behind them at the same time and not having that power to die 
Is that what you mean by without the power to die? Is that she can't hide behind her words? Is that she can hide behind her words. Like, she has the power to strike people down with what she says. Because everything she says is intentional. She can't die behind it. And also, it speaks to when Sue told her, unfortunately, words can't kill people. But we see that juxtaposition played out in the Inferno where she's convinced that she's the reason her father is dead. She thinks she killed him with her words. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> I love, I love Robin. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? She's just what? like soaking that in. <laughs> Well, that's why I brought it up because I don't, I, it, I can't, I hadn't found meaning in that line. I was like, what? It hasn't, it didn't resonate with me. It didn't live in me. It didn't speak to me. And there's so many things that do. And I was like, I want to know from Jess and Jay, like, what do you think that means? Well, I wish we had more time because I really still want to dissect that whole dance sequence because I have so many thoughts about it. What is your take on the Inferno dancing? Well, as we talked about Emily crying throughout the whole Inferno, uh, it, it does become a little bit more clear to me that she's fighting against what she wants and what she thinks she can have. Uh, but, but when they dance, can we talk about how Sue completely portrayed this biblical icon of being the snake in that scenario yes like she completely subverted expectation with that i think i don't know how much choice she had in it but i think it was a creative one to make um you know because you can see emily not knowing how to respond not knowing how to react and sue guiding her this entire time yeah so first so when she goes and she says um why don't does she say why don't i put something else in your mouth or something like that the choice for <laughs> she her to said speak... you're putting words in my mouth so let me put something else in there and Stop. then she sticks her tongue out that is a very interesting choice and that's what made me think about the snake and then when i was watching it again watching her movements right it made me think of a python like at that one point where she was like undulating in front of her and emily was just like what do i what like totally got the snake thing yeah i i picked up on that um and also like emily there were parts where emily just kind of embraced it a little bit right mm -hmm. where she leaned in right especially i just mostly want to talk about that eye contact that was had in that scene the eye fucking <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes the eye fucking um wow that was so heavy like it was palpable. You could feel it. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, I don't know the way Emily portrayed that part, the magnetism, the magnetism, the chemistry, like yeah. I felt like legitimately, like with those, the, those two looking at each other, that, that look itself, it just looked like it was like, they were magnetizing towards each other. I legit thought I had you not, had you not, had like had we not seen the rest of the scene like ha let's say like they would have given that that to us in a clip like in a trailer mm -hmm. i would have thought they were gonna kiss right there i feel like that's 
also seeing the work of those two actors and how intimately they've been working together because there's you see other actors have chemistry right I mean you can tell when people have chemistry and when they don't but those two have so much trust in everything that they do that I feel like it just opens them up on a whole different level yeah and for Emily to think that this is the only way that I can have Sue is what society would accept of her yeah. which is until being a man which again would buy back into the patriarchy it's and her representing that snake and eating its tail that repetition of can i escape this cycle oh yeah oh that's so good and the pain and again going back to the tears then also just the looks on her face of being torn apart by wanting something so bad and not being able to have it except for being in another cage you yeah. could see how torn she looked like yeah. so so lost yeah she was completely disoriented even mm -hmm. during that intimate moment where they're they make full eye contact and emily's leaning into this that part of her was into it but like yeah she she looked like she was in a she looked like she was in a daze yeah completely disoriented like like she didn't know what to do with herself much less the situation yeah but but when she opened the doors to go out onto the battlefield that alone was just cinematic beauty mm -hmm. right because she's got the alabaster walls she's got the wisteria hanging all down the walls mm -hmm. she opens the door lets herself out and walks out onto the battlefield now she's ready to reckon with herself all right everyone and now we're gonna turn the conversation over to brooke and we're gonna dissect what we loved about 307, the highs and lows of 308, and what all of that means to each of us and how we interpret these scenes as a whole. Hi, my name is Brooke. I am from Hungary. I am a ESL teacher. And um, what you need to know about me is I really, really love podcasts and Dickinson, so this is something magical that's happening to me right now. And um, thanks for having me. And much like Emily, I really like gardening and reading. And yes, I'm kind of like an introvert myself. And I don't know, that's, that's all. And I think the rest will come up later and you will get to know me more about more about me as I'm um, sharing my thoughts with you. But if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer. Awesome. Okay. Love it. She loves yes. flowers. She yes. loves flowers, All people. Flowers. <laughs> What's your favorite one? What's your favorite flower? Jasmine. Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have my own garden with... Um, vegetables and I have in my room it's much like not not really but it's kind of like Emily's conservatory because it's, there are plants everywhere so we are big on plants in my family and it's just we now actually had to ban ourselves from bringing more plants into the house <laughs> but it, it never never actually because yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so I can't have a lot of plants indoor. I have a few, but I, I, I feel like I might kill them. So <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of them indoors, but I do have a nice little garden in the front and roses are my favorite flowers. So 
Yes, guys, I garden. And, and <laughs> Jess, Robin, where are yours? Mm, I have a favorite flower, but I don't garden at all. I don't have the space for it. Um, I personally like tulips, like mm. pink tulips. Oh, nice. I like sunflowers. <gasps> the big ones. Yeah, sunflowers are beautiful. When you're on the train, um, it was on the, um, I forget the name of the train, but I always remember we're going from like the south of France to Paris, and it was just an entire i don't know how many miles of sunflowers and i was just like oh i'm going to paris and there's sunflowers and so that always <laughs> kind of stayed with me all right okay. i guess let's do this <clears throat> all right uh so brooke your cerebral approach to research and your philosophy of the inner life of emily dickinson is both laudable and studious how has the show's portrayal of Emily changed your perspective of 19th century American literature and history? Well, um, to begin with, I wasn't much on history myself. I really loved literature in school, but history was just always something that was out of my reach. It was too much data, too much to memorize and conceptualize. And through the show, I have developed so much interest in history. And what's really interesting that through my research about Higginson, I learned about Hungarian history as well. And I just imagine that I'm reading the biography or memoir about Higginson, and he mentions our national heroes and the um, connection with Hungary and the European revolutionists in the context of the civil war, I, that just blew my mind. So not only do I know more about civil war um, than I could have ever dreamed or hoped for or imagined, now I know more about my own. And I think that's incredibly fascinating and rewarding. And so I would like to thank the show for that because that just, that was, that was quite incredible. And, um, Yes, and having just to read Emily's poems was something that I couldn't have ever imagined because, you know, English is my second language and I don't read um, Emily's poems in a translated form. I've never read it in Hungarian. I am reading it in English. And um, I don't know what's the experience for other international fans, but to um, have the confidence in myself through the show um, to actually pick up um, Emily's letters or, or Emily's poems or just do a research about um, 19th century. I think that's, um, that's quite, quite um, a big achievement and I don't know how they did it and I don't know what something clicked in my brain that made me um, research so much, but... Uh, it's just truly so rewarding. And um, what I love about the show is, um, once again, this is just my, my interpretation and, and my viewing experience, but the, um, the episodes, um, especially the first season, provided this framework for me in which to conceptualize and interpret her poems and, and made them 
accessible in a way because of the the aesthetics because it's the show is a pure visual indulgence and and then it has this narrative framework and i just can make sense of the poems or just be okay with them not making sense to me and that that i can come back and and just think about the poems and feel them and so I think it's it's really incredible how the show translated the poems for for readers, and and there is this newfound um, passion for for poetry for so many people, and yeah. So, do you feel do you feel like whenever you um, you read an Emily Dickinson poem and then like you leave it? and then you come back to it and you read it again, does it mean something completely different each time that you read a poem? Yes, and I have to read, um, I, can, I can only read a few poems at a time, or just one, and just sit with, with each line and come back and read it again and again and again. And that's how it will slowly start to make sense for me. But it, 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 it doesn't even, it's not... It's something that it's between thinking and feeling. And I don't know how to explain that, but sometimes I just, I know that I know what the poem means, but I absolutely have no idea what's going on. So it's, yes. Yes. it's like something so far at the back of my head, but I just, I know what she means, but I also, I don't. And yeah, so it's like one or two poems at a time and it, they just have this strange power over me and, and yes, and, and what's really interesting is that I can recite those words and, and re- out of the blue, I would have um, Emily Dickinson quotes or lines from poems inside my head. So I don't know how, but it just sticks in my brain. And I think that's really interesting to think about. Yes. I mean, words have some... Do you yeah. have this like collage of Emily Dickinson quotes, poems? Every single day, every single day. I mean, we're, we, we talk about it a lot on our second episode of this podcast. So, I mean, yeah, every day, like, I mean, I can, every single day I tell myself I dwell in possibility. And, and that's just, to me, what that means is not putting yourself in a box. So, but you could have a completely different meaning to that. Jess? Mm. Mine that sticks out probably the most for me is she dealt her pretty words like blades, how glittering they shone. That's probably one of my absolute favorite um, because it's so open to interpretation, you know, like it will mean something different for everybody who reads it or views it across screen. So I think that kind of speaks to her knowledge of the capacity of what the written word can do. Yes. And that's such a deep cut. That's such a deep cut. Like that's one of her more like profound stanzas, and very visceral. Yeah, yeah. I don't. We yeah. We so we discussed this in our second episode, and I don't have a favorite. I have them all just kind of traveling around, <laughs> and I had that same experience where there's this connection where I know what these poems are about, and how it's about me, <laughs> and how I'm connecting to these. But there's not one line that sticks out. There's not, um, you know, there's not just one. It's all of them. 
So, Brooke, uh, how do you feel about the correlation between Emily Dickinson and the modern synchronicity with Sylvia Plath's immortality? I know that you read her as well. Yes, and um, I would like to just talk about episode seven, if that's if that's okay. Yeah. Because so for each episode, I need days to sit with, and then the ideas will slowly come to me. And I was just thinking about how what this episode has done in terms of like deconstructing the canon about women, um, about Sylvia and, and um, Emily. Because I think there is this idea about in the collective consciousness about them, uh, which is really digestible that they, Emily was this recluse, this virginal, reserved, shy, frail little bird, and or, or how Sylvia had this led this really tragic life and in what a ways that she she's died so young and what the show did is deconstructed those those ideas and I think um, both Sylvia and um, Emily knew the power of their words and that these women were so angry and they were so furious and but it's easier to to um, look at women geniuses and say that they have been unconventional, but they were sad and tragic than to accept them for the, for the angry women that they were. Um, because if we face that truth, then we have to face other truths as well. Like why were they so, so angry? And, um, and that line, um, the future never comes for women, like, I'm still sitting with that, and I'm still just, wow, isn't that the truth? And um, these women both were visionaries, and I think that they stood on the margins of time, and why they, I still don't fully know myself why their words mean so much to us um, in the 21st century, and why those words were true in the 20th and the 19th probably because we're still in the same we're still in the same endless loop of of women being put in shackles and and us not being able to control our bodies and just everything you know so i think we're still stuck yeah what a great way to silence them right by saying like oh they were just sad and reclusive and they were crazy they were insane a recluse goodness i don't i think that because we have immortalized them in a way we did disservice to them because we really took took that anger away that is so important because I think about Emily and how every poem she's ever written is a battle fought and won and it's just like how crazy is it to know that she wanted her poems to be burned after she died how how in a box, how in a cage do you have to be and feel to feel like my poems need to die after I die instead of saying publish them after I die? That is... Yes. And I think this week I've been thinking a lot about her poem, My Lo- Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun, which is, I think it's very self-revealing poem. And she knows, she knows how good she is. She knows how match her the weight of her words and yes yet she asks 
her family to to burn those poems and i just thank god <sighs> they didn't thank god for lavinia thank you vinny i think the, the time traveling episode is so brilliant because we have traveled 100 years in time forward and everything was still backwards so truly the the future never comes for women and but i really like the way it was important for emily to have this model of a female poet because if you remember in the circus um, episode it, she's called a freak for being one and then she has a model for that for being a woman with a voice and a woman who has access to education and a woman who can so freely own her identity as a writer I, I thought that was really really brilliant and and wonderful that was very well articulated I must so Brooke what character arc would you say resonates with you the most and why it's Emily's and right now it's her season three arc which has been on my mind constantly and um not only is because of her internal journey and the internal exploration of herself and her deepest desires and um, how she is tentatively inching closer and closer to to fully owning herself and and her body not just her intellect which I can really um, resonate with because I I think from my Twitter you can um, see um, that I'm really logical, perceptive, cerebral person, and much like Emily. And she places so much emphasis on her intellect and her words that she she's having trouble understanding that people want all of her. And that means being present. Also, what really resonates with me, and I think is... Um, incredible is how her relationship with Sue the way it's unfolding with um with Sue not only guiding her into this career relationship but how they are they don't have a model for that and how in Emily's life she doesn't have a model um, for being a female poet she doesn't have a model for being in a relationship with a woman and all these things she has to forge her, for herself, she has to, to fight for, and she has to live in secret, and she has to conceal so much about herself that no wonder that this woman lives inside her head because this is the only safe space for her. And then people see her for the blazing, shining, brilliant being that she is, and they want so much of her but it's it's so difficult to just be especially being a woman in the 19th century and i think what the show is doing is so brilliant and so nuanced and subtle and i think anyone who's ever ever been you know guarded and um yes guarded with their heart can can resonate with emily's story and if you have something you're passionate about then um it's really difficult to to share that with the whole world and you know in season two Emily has concluded that her work has to remain unseen and it's for herself and it's just shared between 
Sue and herself, but it's not enough. Um, their love has to take other dimensions as well. And that something, I think this is um, a place where, I, where she doesn't have control. And, and if you are a person who has to constantly defy your circumstances, then to, to let that go is absolutely terrifying. And um, so Emily's story is right now is, is really resonating with me because falling in love is, is, you know, it takes courage. And, but being in love with a woman in the 19th century, that's, that's something else. I completely agree with you. I've been thinking so much about, and I think we interacted on Twitter about it too, about that journey, how safe it is to be in your imagination, how safe it is to be in your work and how scary it is to reveal yourself. I have an eight-year-old son and he's outside the box. <laughs> he is, he is a beautiful emo. His teenage years are going to be painful for us. I can tell right now in a beautiful way. Um, he's just this beautiful being. And my wife and I talk a lot about helping him bring his full self to the world yes. because that's, that's, we all have to do that no matter how marginalized we are, right? There's that fear of exposing yourself. Yeah. So this, this show always hits me in a very personal and then it always goes to the universality of just being how hard it is to be a human being in the world, you know? Yes. And can I talk a little bit about Higginson as well? Because yeah. I really, really love um, the, the mentorship, the friendship they share. And um, I like reading about it a lot. And I've been thinking um, a lot about why Emily chose Higginson out of all the people she could have chosen in New England in the US. Why him? And I think that Emily knew that, um, and I've talked about this, that he needed, she needed someone to have a, an intellectual relationship with that didn't require anything um, physical from her. It's just purely cerebral. But I also think that Higginson was kind of a guardian of her words, but her heart as well. Because if you think about who Higginson is as a person, he is an abolitionist, an activist, an environmentalist, a vegetarian, a feminist. I think Emily recognized something in him that she recognized in her own self, that, that um, rebellious nature. And she uh, struck up a friendship with someone who could understand her and understand the wars that she was fighting every day. And um, it really, sometimes I think about how isolated she must have been, but to have Sue and Higginson in her life um, somehow eases that, that pain I feel for her because she didn't actually have a, an isolated life. She had people around her that really cared for her and really, really valued her. And, and that's a comforting thought to me. Yeah, so to have found both of these extraordinary people, Sue and Higginson, I think it's a miracle. And I think that she had a support system, an emotional and intellectual, and this is the way she was able to flourish. I don't know a lot about Higginson, to be honest with you. There's so much more that I can learn. I already have like eight books. <laughs> I just keep amassing more. And now Higginson, I'm like, oh, I didn't really go deep into that relationship. Um, 
But one thing that I was just wondering is, so in the show, Sue says, you don't even mention me. And then I do know after Emily passed away, right, Vinny wanted Sue to put together the, that anthology and she just took her a long time, took her a long time, which, oh my God, I could, could you even imagine trying to put that together? Um, and then Sue wrote Higginson. And so I, I don't know, does anybody know, did, did, did it come to the point to where there was a balance in that relationship where like Higginson knew about Sue, maybe not what that, what Sue and Emily's relationship was, but did Sue become part of that, you know, like, I don't know, like that triad or was it always like Emily and Higginson with that mentorship and then Emily and Sue? I actually don't know. I don't, mm -hmm. I think it's separate. Yes. Yeah. Compartmentalized. I remember you were talking about that. Yeah. 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 I'm I know sorry. she does write a letter to, um, I, I always remember this, that she wrote a letter to Higginson afterwards, basically apologizing for not getting everything together. And the thing that I always remember a line that always like stuck with me was Sue said, Emily understands. She didn't say Emily would understand or in the past tense, she said, Emily understands. And that always stuck with me. <sighs> to speak to the eternally, like eternal nature of their relationship. Um, so I know they had their correspondence, but. Is there any other line that you would say uh, stuck with you outside of my life stood a loaded gun? Um, it's the um, season two finale with um, the interaction Emily has with Fraser. And when Fraser tells her to that she will have wars to fight, but she might must fight them alone in secret. That whole scene always leaves me in a very emotional state and I just I can't ever watch it without getting teary-eyed at least because I think that's, that's her whole life, you know, fighting wars. And it's, it's it was really profound and um, I can really... I wouldn't even say relate. I just really look up to this woman for what she's done with her life, with the limitations that were set on her, against her, that she could, through all of all of um, what being born in the 19th century, all the restrictions that she could basically unlace her corsetry and, and what she could do with the power of her mind. And, and but she did all of that in secret. What do you think Emily Dickinson would be like now, like in modern day? I often think about if she would have a Twitter account and if she would be like or a <laughs> Tumblr poet or Tumblr poet. Yeah. I love that so much. Tumblr poet. <laughs> I think I think she would thrive in the 21st century. She could write and publish anonymously in any way she wants. And she would be a badass. <laughs> I mean, like like Sylvia Plath said, Emily Dickinson was the original sad girl. She she'd be able to be a sad girl, just full full blown, full out, you know, live her sad girl truth, right? Yes, she would have a following. I'm sure of that. Following of intellectual minds. Yeah. So, if you had the opportunity to ask Emily any question in the afterlife what would it be and why it's once again higginson related um did you know that this is from the habaker biography that she because they had a 24-year correspondence 
and her letters were not posted from Amherst. They were um, from nearby towns, two, three other towns, and no one knew how she managed to do that. So that um, epistolary um, friendship, mentorship was concealed from the world. And, and I don't know how she pulled that off, that she could, you know, post her letters from, from nearby towns. And I just want, would like to know how or why. Is it with the political affiliation and because of her father and, and oh. even some being the person he is? Or was it because she was just, she didn't want anyone to know that she has this man in her life for decades you just blew my mind wow yeah wow no idea emily dickinson she was a ghost yes and again a badass how did she pull that off like for 24 years mind you me like the 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 lengths she would go to to (laughs) just hide and we know that she hid from people in her life later on and so and that brings me back again to want her wanting her poems burned like this girl was not trying to be found people did he meet her did he meet her like twice yes am i remembering that correctly okay yes yes and she didn't want to be found yet she she struck up a friendship with him and just wrote him a letter that here i am be my friend be my mentor that really fascinates me because this is a person who hides who is secluded who retreats from the public life willingly, consciously, and then she she just reveals herself to another person out of the blue. Like what what was going on in her mind? Like what did she see in Higginson? I just an intro. She's an introverted extrovert. She she antisocial and social at the same time. That is. I was just going to say, I believe in 306 when she's talking to Vinny and she's talking about Higginson, she mentions, she lists off things that she really enjoys about him, that he was an abolitionist and she considered him such a free thinker. So maybe she followed the same philosophy he did. Yes. Do, you, do we know who initiated the meetings? I mean, because again, she's talking about in the show and then we kind of see in her work how she expresses herself and it's safe, right? She doesn't have to physically be in the same room with this person. He doesn't know her. That's what Emily says to Sue in the show. So I wonder who initiated those meetings. It was Higginson. But- I think they made that clear in the show too, because when he wrote back to her, it's he states, I wish to someday meet you. Oh yeah, you come to, yeah. Do you ever come to Boston or yeah, talking about Do you ever mm-hmm. yeah. And um I I don't know if I remember correctly, but she wanted to meet him after they met, uh, after the initial, you know, um, encounter, but she wouldn't leave um, the homestead. So she she wouldn't um, travel to see him and she would just stay put in one place and would just ask Higginson to come see her. That's really interesting too, because obviously Higginson was important to her, but she she wouldn't leave her home. And so that, that put a limitation on their, their relationship. Well, well, Emily was never considered a war poet, but in writing to Higginson and also trying to put that poetry, trying to articulate what she believes to be hope for soldiers. Do you think she actually reached those soldiers? 
That's a really good question. Hmm. I know that, um, and this will not be much philosophical, but it's factual that um, there was a time, a five-month period, where her poems would be published, and um, there was a chance that soldiers actually read her poems. So hmm. she could literally reach um, soldiers, if I remember correctly, I think. Um, yes, and there was a chance that Higginson um, read her published poems and recognize them from their correspondence. Um, and it's once again, there is a woman who, who has her most prolific, her most productive um, period in her writing life, writing about um, the civil war. And those poems never see the light of day. And, and why? Because obviously she was really, really, um, concerned with um, the war and death and the grief and she but but her poems were not published just only a handful of them and, and why and why did she not publish them and and you know help with the collective grief of the nation yeah that's that's really interesting mm -hmm. is it can we ask of her that like is it her was it her, I would say, like responsibility as, as artists? Do mm. we have this duty to publish our work? Do we have this duty to share? I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. I just come up with that. Oh my God. But yeah, so. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been so good. So good. I've been thinking about that too. I went through, I went through this period. Um, where I wasn't writing narrative anymore. I was doing story producing for this, uh, this um, uh, other company that I worked for. And I remember two weeks before we started watching Dickinson, I told my wife, I was like, you know, it's okay. You know that I'm not really doing my creative work anymore. Um, it's cool because I'm doing this story thing. And then I started watching Dickinson and then I started reading the poems and everything started churning again. And I came back to this, my narrative writing. And I was like, as she was going through her journey about being published, I was like, you know what? I need to be in that sacred space where it's just me creating that moment. That's that where you connect with something that's in you and always in you and from outside. And I need, you know, I realized that I need that for me. That's part of my being. And if I ever like, you know, if I ever pitch this to somebody or to Netflix or whatever, that's a whole separate thing. But that, that time, like, that's what I owe me. That's what I owe myself. Um, so yeah, I was, I've been thinking about that a lot. And then we've actually discussed what, it, what does an artist owe people? Um, we're, we're actually going to talk about that on our next episode oh. after yours. So I'm really glad you brought that question up. Um, no, so Robin, to touch on what you were saying, I actually had a, not a, not so similar because I'm I'm not writing stories right now or anything. Um, but I stopped doing photography for quite a bit of time because I kind of lost. I, I I'm not sure if I would say I lost a spark, 
but I just wasn't in a place where I was feeling inspired to do anything about it. And then the show came out and it just, Emily Dickinson's like poetry and just, just how the show was written and just how I would see how vivid her imagination would be in the show. Right. And it just kind of sparked that joy in me again, just how like cinematically beautiful the show is mm-hmm. really sparked inspiration and to me for me to start doing photography again and that just kind of like now I just I just go out and do it for fun like before I used to really be like business as usual but now it's like any chance I get I'm taking a shot you know yeah because of this show and because of Emily Dickinson yep so her fire feeds your fire (laughs) I love that her fire and all the fires on the show like all the talent on the show Yes. So much talent. I mean, and it's really unprecedented because as an ensemble cast, right, you don't typically get that kind of depth of character for every person. We were talking about this earlier, Jess. Like I I told Jess, I was like, I don't remember quite what show we were talking about, but when it comes to casting, there's usually one person that'll body their character right that'll body the show that'll carry the show right but in this case in Dickinson every single person pulls their weight and it is tremendous to see that every single character whether it be Lavinia whether it be Sue whether it be Austin if they have a deep cutting scene all of them punch you right in the gut I think it speaks to the passion and the love, because I swear from my experience from working on film and stuff, when people really love what they do, you can feel it. You can feel it on films that I've worked for. You know when something's clicking. And when you listen to the cast, how much they love it, how much Elena loves it, how much she opens up collaboration, right? I love hearing Ella talking about how her and Haley collaborated so much on this relationship and how much love they have for it. Like, I feel like that is, that is an exceptional cast. I don't think I've ever has carried that much love and passion in that way. And the crew too. Do you ever just look at the BTS pictures and it's all women? And I'm like, yes. Oh my God. Yes. And you you can tell, you can tell. Yes. That's what happens when women create TV or films or anything. That is what happens when women get together. Yes. Yes. It's so true. Yeah. They make the best show on TV, period, period. Plus, she also, like, I think we had touched on this before, had an incredibly diverse writer's room. I mean, she brought in a lot of different voices in there, not just not just female voices. Um, and I think that's so important, too, you know? But, of course. Since we're talking about writer's room, can we just highlight Sophie for a minute? Yeah. Sophie Zucker, yeah. Sophie. Yes, ma'am. I think I think she's absolutely incredible. She's clinical. I mean, guys, Abby, Abby in a straitjacket, like yeah, I like the pills. Give me more. I want to know the I want to know the weight she carries, like in the writing room, like when it comes to comedic comedic lines and stuff like that. Like she, I don't know if you guys like actually see her Twitter, but it's it's wild. Oh, she's like hysterical. it's off the chain. She is off the chain. Like she is. Like Jess, you and I were talking about how how live Twitter is, <laughs> like insane, insane. 
Yeah, it, it truly is. And, and that's kind of a nice segue into a tweet that you sent out, Brooke, that I really want to explore for just a second wow. about the female gaze. Yes. Mm. You want to dissect that a little bit? Wow. Um, okay. It, it's really hard for me to uh, verbalize this because I instantly have all these images in my head, like the finale of season two with all those flowers, the bathtub, the the Dickinson table full of food and just <laughs> and then I think it's really and I haven't actually talked about this yet because oh my god like I am actually have to um stop myself from tweeting like I could tweet 10 times as much as I'm tweeting there is oh my god I don't know is it the second or the first episode I'm sorry um where Sue is eating and she's eating a grapefruit and I don't know if, if it's a conscious um, link between the finale, but because of the shot of the, was it an orange? Grapefruit? Yeah, it was an orange, the shot where she. <laughs> <laughs> the I don't know if it has any significance or not, but I think maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but you can see that um, the sensory pleasure Sue takes from food. I think it really speaks about her character and maybe it's just a pregnant woman you know who's just hungry but the way I read that is that she's she's just really yeah it's it's the the sensory pleasure the yeah. groundedness that that Emily still has yet to find in herself and and Sue's just so alive so grounded and just takes life in its fullest form and and Emily is just so restrained and and even talks about how much sue is eating but i think in a there is another um dimension to that to that um scene i think it's because like to touch on what we said in episode one of the podcast sue knows what she wants like and she's vocally asking for it now and she's basically you know robin said this is is building the world that she wants right and emily is still trying to figure it out. Girl is lost in the sauce and and she's trying to put it into fruition, you know, not just into words, but into fruition. Well, and yeah, oh my gosh, everything that you're all saying is that Sue is literally embodying it, right? I mean, she held back her desire so much in season two and now she is feeling it through every cell of her body and devouring it. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. That whole extra layer. And that also reminds me of, did Ella layer that in there? Are we seeing that? That's one thing that really fascinates me, right? Because we don't know exactly what Ella's choices are, but. But then you see like Ella's like indulging in all this food and then she offers Emily food and Emily's like, no. Yes. No. Right. And so it totally could be. I, I'm just saying that's why we need a box set. Yes. And also the, the roses, the gazebo the pink lightning i mean what can because i i i love time travel and i love time traveling um tv shows i like sci love sci-fi and everything is blue and i almost made a tweet like who decided that sci-fi is the color blue and <laughs> don't hold yourself back. honestly honestly okay so question who believes in time travel like who thinks it's real I don't, the Simpsons? Why not? Why wouldn't it be possible? There's black holes. Why wouldn't there be? Why wouldn't it be possible? I don't know. I don't think anybody's. Fi- I mean, obviously nobody's figured it out yet. But the Simpsons? Or have they? The, the Simpsons? Sim- 
the Simpsons are, um, so Jay, um, the Simpsons are real. <laughs> or maybe if we, really sorry. if we don't know how to time travel, we know how to access ideas from this higher place. I truly believe in that. If you mm, read yes. about Nikola Tesla or just Emily Dickinson, but I would yes. even say Elena Smith, like everything that she's Whoa! written is so eerily prescient, right? What what was it? The TikTok, the shanties, the same episode aired when, when those shanties, the songs were popular on TikTok. And I was like, what? Like how? how <laughs> oh, I didn't even know about like, that. <laughs> What? Yep. I believe in the same thing that you do, that we can definitely, there is a connection. So there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to do that in one way or another, or already do, or maybe we already exist in the past and the present and the future at the same time. Yes. I mean, there's more unknown than known, right? That's crazy because like, I mean, you think about it, like, like, I don't know if we're gonna get like freaky with this, but like reincarnation <laughs> or like, I don't know, like it's just, so I had mentioned this to Jess earlier today. I was like, Haley Steinfeld was born a day after Emily Dickinson was born. This, this chick was literally born to play Emily Dickinson. Are you kidding me? And the fact that Elena would cast her and then just, yeah, that's crazy, guys. It is crazy. I think that was an educated choice on the behalf of the right? casting director, right? Like, they knew. <laughs> well, talking about the existence of past, present, and future, and, and where it all comes together. Erasmus made a very profound philosophical quote um, when he's explaining that there is a coexistence of past and future, only if you have the eyes to see it. So if he's able to access that plane, to pull that philosophy, to pull that idea, and have that moderately existential moment where he's explaining to everybody that you have to, he was essentially agreeing with Henry, I believe, saying that, you know, America is a paradox. We have to understand its history. We have to break it apart and interpret it in how we need to. But do you all believe that it all coexists only if you have the eyes to see it? It could. I mean, isn't what inventing stuff and creating stuff is about that you can imagine a life, a future that's better, that's more beneficial that serves people from a you know very humanitarian perspective so like i don't know if you guys watch ancient aliens but um this is completely it's it's relevant to what we're talking about <laughs> wait wait a second i was i was waiting for the relevance so i was like okay oh, hold pause. on all right look, hold, look. wait for so, it wait what it's relevant okay they had this episode where they were talking about how like these creative minds like steve jobs or like you know just revolutionary people in technology or just anything right how they have like a like there's like this astral plane that they reach right like people believe that they have like this other sense or like this other level that they can go to whether it be when they sleep when they meditate you know, so that's the relevance that, that you know, yeah. ancient aliens has to. But like, I, I do believe that people can reach that other level of enlightenment. Yeah, People have such vivid imaginations, you know, and oftentimes you don't hear about it because they like put these people in a box and they're like, you're crazy. Well, where do we but go? But they're just visionaries. 
what what is our subconscious i mean where can we where are we actually going in there where do we actually go when we dream really i mean what is mm -hmm. what kind like is okay billy. astral projection okay billy and then also here's the other thing how much of our brains do we actually use right what is, is it still four percent or is something like i mean who knows that's what i I'm think saying. i use less unknown. what'd you say i think i use i think i use less than four <laughs> percent <laughs> I think though it's actually seven to ten percent uh, brain capacity that people actually use. But yeah, yeah. speaking to I think, people I think who it's are able to access that plane, you know, I think it's a little bit more for them because that could be. But I think they that see gets back to creativity. what we don't see. What are we accessing when we have that creative channel that feels like it's organic coming from us, but also connected to something bigger than us? I don't know. No, so what about the past, the, the sense memory, you know, mm -hmm. like how do you, how sometimes, you know, I would dream about something or, or, and I, I don't know where I know these things from or where do they come from? Mm -hmm. So I don't know, can we exist in the past, in the future at the same time? I think Isn't we do it every day. Is about? I don't, wow, I don't know big questions i really think we do it all every day living in both past and future we idealize the future yes. what we want but we only learn from the past hopefully yeah. <laughs> and what yeah. i really love about this show that um now there is there is this community of people who are excavating the past and they are shedding new light. And I, I'm just talking about Dickinson in particular, but from personal experience, I'm researching the past. And, and it's just wonderful. Like who would have thought that because of this show, there would be this beautiful group of people who are gathering together and they are discussing the show together. Or, or that they would just devote their time to, to read about the past, think about a better future. I just, uh, it, it's so lovely and it just blows my mind. Thank you, Elena Smith. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Elena Smith, we love you. That's truly extraordinary. She's a visionary of her own though. Yes, yes. The yes, badass yes. too. So does uh, anybody have anything else to contribute to the theme or? I just want to say thank you, Brooke. You have been absolutely amazing. Yes. This is, you, I didn't think we'd get so deep into this conversation. Mind like, blowing. My goodness. I'm going to walk away and go sit on my couch again and think just like I did ah. after episodes. <laughs> I'm going to go watch Ancient Aliens now because. <laughs> Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I, I really hope I, I don't know, I, I made you proud or I could live up to your expectations. And I did good because this was my first time um, being on a podcast. And I, I hope I didn't fumble it or Right, you were awesome. No. You were awesome. You were absolutely awesome. This is yeah. awesome. Amazing. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. 
Yeah, I think it's safe to say that you kind of transcended our expectations. <laughs> and it's just such a pleasure to meet you too. Yes, and I, and I feel so good. Like, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm, I'm really introverted and I, I don't open up to people. And, and this podcast made me really reflect and, and look myself in the mirror um, because I am good with words and with Twitter, I can take my time and, and edit. And it's good that there is a, a word limit on Twitter because yes, I would be. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for me. Um, and now to have to actually talk to you and I don't have that, that the same way like Emily, I don't, ha- I can't hide between my, my little phone and my words and I have to show up. <laughs> And, and and embody my words. I mean, we hope that really that really is that we can create this space for everyone. Because I know there's a lot of people that are very timid, that are very, you know, shy and then feel like, I mean, in real life that they can't, they don't have a friend group to go to to talk about Dickinson. So I, I really hope that with this podcast, we can create that space for them to to say, hey, I would love to be on. And we would love to have you guys on. So you did that. When I listened to the first episode, I kept smiling like after just one minute. And I looked at the timestamp. It's like, this is just one minute. And I already feel so at ease. And I feel so welcomed as a listener. And I listened to a lot of podcasts. So this one is special. Like you oh. can feel the good vibes. Like you can feel that you're having a conversation and you are all just so loving and kind people and you have the best of intentions like it it really it comes through you can feel it guys i'm gonna have to turn my camera off because this is about to make me cry that is so great well it was all inspired by this community that we're in again this like great community and that you're a part of so thank you so much for joining us i hope we get to talk to you again too Oh, I would love that. And thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. We just want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, the very early on support has been absolutely tremendous. We love you guys. You can follow us on Twitter at the number four evermore, capital P-O-D. You can follow us on Instagram at dickinson.forevermore.podcast. And you can go check out our website. That'll have the links to where you can listen to the podcast. That's right. And you can hear this podcast on Spotify or wherever else that you listen to podcasts. Bye. So how about, uh, let's talk about the dance. Please don't do do me. Let's talk about Master Sue. I'm like, please don't do me like that. Master Um, Sue, the false god. Look, Emily is going to top Sue in the next episode. I'm going to say. My gay bones are not going to be able to handle this. I'm going to be, look, hashtag distraught queer next episode. (laughs) Oh my God. Distraught. You had me at distraught. (laughs) Distraught queer. (laughs)